Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Dr. Anton Howes. Uh, Anton is a historian and the author of the book, Arts and Minds, How the Royal Society of Arts Changed a Nation. Anton, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. So, Anton, by, by way of introduction, why don't you sort of expound, when, when you look back on the arc of your career and sort of intellectual journey, what is the thread that ties everything together? Or what are the question or questions that you, you keep on asking? Hmm. I guess a lot of it comes down to cultures of innovation. How is it that people create, it's not only how is it that people invent things, but how is it that people create the conditions in which invention becomes less costly, more desirable, more socially desirable, um, and just in general, in, in general easier. So how is it that you get these kind of fantastic hubs or golden ages or efflorescences or whatever you want to call them um, from time to time um, and then especially how is it that we got the modern world in that, you know, we've, we've been riding this wave of continuous improvement for at least the past few hundred years and it's been spreading from country to country and the ability of our ability to create new technologies has been um, improving. It seems, I think to me, I know there's a bit of debate about this recently, but yeah, I think ultimately if, if, it, if I was to pick out a particular thread, it comes down to how we create those cultures or really not even cultures, subcultures, small-ish groups of people who um, can maybe have a wider impact on society at large, either through the inventions themselves or through the kinds of norms or memes that they propagate, but really ultimately coming down to these very small groups of people. And you spend a lot of time looking at those subcultures in in England, among other places. Talk about how, how you discovered uh, what your sort of intellectual journey was in, in discovering that and, and what surprised you about it or how you sort of came to spend so much time f- focusing there. Yeah, so I started off being just interested in economic growth. Um, I'd, I'd, I observed, there was a kind of actually a sort of weird coincidence perhaps is that I'd just been happening to be kind of fiddling around with data on GDP per capita growth um, in the 20th century I noticed that when the Soviet Union um, came into being, Russian technology seems to have basically just kind of stopped at the level that was pretty much the most advanced level in Britain and America at the time. And so that was the level that they reached in the 1980s in terms of GDP per capita. It was almost as if they'd kind of had this shut off where they'd imported all of these technologies in up to 1910, 1920 and then use, continued using those technologies and then getting the most out of them such that by the 1980s, they'd kind of begun to stagnate. Now, obviously, there was lots of innovation in the Soviet Union as well around that. You know, they did well with the space race and, and there were obviously encouragements and awards for inventors, even if they may not have had quite the same effect as they did in, in other countries and in the West in particular. But what struck me there is that there seems to be something, there was something important, a political story there. Um, But then that took me to looking at Britain in particular and the causes of how we get that kind of modern economic growth in the first place. And actually, the most striking thing I discovered was that 
although politics matters in extreme cases like the Soviet Union or today, maybe you'd look at North Korea. Actually, in general, politics doesn't seem to matter at all. Um, if you look at Britain's growth over the past few hundred years, it's pretty steady. It's, you know, one to two, maybe pushing 2.5% growth per year every single year, pretty much, with ups and downs, of course, but really kind of coming back to that baseline level. And that's the same um, across most of most countries that have had that innovation bug um, for the past few hundred years, including places like France. So I like to joke that, you know, France has had pretty steady economic growth, and yet it's already on its fifth republic. So it's not as though, you know, it's been going backwards and forwards between monarchy, emperorship, republic, back to whatever other kind of weird configuration of these political regimes and all sorts of different laws and all sorts of different policies. And yet economic growth, which uh, modern economic growth, so this continuous thing driven by technological improvement, more so than any other factor, that seems to have been extremely steady. And so that got me kind of interested in, you know, if we're going to look at the beginnings of these things, the origins of them, what we're seeing here is something that became so powerful in its first few years or maybe the first century or whoever knows right but became so powerful that once the genie was out the bottle it was here to stay that you have to really mess up a country for the innovation train to stop let's get to the 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 book why this book and what what were you trying to answer or really uh, get across right so i think the way to think about this book so arts and minds is that it's a case study of one of the more successful institutions that innovators themselves within Britain created to promote innovation, right? So the Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufacturers and Commerce, you know, 11 blokes in 1754 in a coffee house declare themselves to be such a society, is now the Royal Society of Arts. It still actually has that full title, um, but it's often abbreviated RSA or whatever. Um, They create what is effectively Britain's um, National Improvement Agency, originally for inventions, and then kind of twisted to whatever ends that its members um, felt required improvements, such as artistic design, or, you know, collecting botanical specimens, or creating new trade routes with the colonies for Britain, and so on and so forth. Um, And then, decade after decade, kind of transforming um, the way it does things and finding new niches, finding new gaps um, with which to fill. So in the first hundred years, it's this premium giving society gives prizes or uh, cash prizes or honorary medals um, depending on the kind of people that they're trying to appeal to for inventions that were not patented so to complement stand alongside the patent system in the next um, in, in the 1840s and 50s it starts to transform itself into more of an exhibition holding society so a very different model of innovation where instead of just trying to use particular prizes they 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 try to get all of the inventions in the same room so that you can start to compare like with like and you can spark these sort of serendipitous discoveries um, in in that kind of way as well, as well as concentrating on things like skills for the masses. So creating examination systems, supporting the mechanics institutions, mechanics institutions, um, or with the creation of a union of mechanics institutions, as well as all sorts of other means, and just lobbying for reforms to copyright, to patents, to all sorts of different structures around creativity and around um, innovation. And then taking that further in the modern day, um, in the 20th century, with all sorts of other different niches that it starts to get into, sometimes as random as trying to preserve 
London's old buildings by creating the blue plaque scheme where you have these kind of lovely little plaques that say such and such famous person lived here this date to that date. Very common today, but most people don't realise it emerged in that kind of foment of different ideas that they were coming up with and different schemes that they had. Um, Or things like uh, the preservation of ancient cottages, medieval and Tudor ones that were being torn down because of new sanitation laws and road widening in the early 20th century or the the environmentalist movement in the 1960s. So I guess in summary, you know, this is a very, in some ways, this book goes all over the place and I was commissioned to write it by the RSA itself, although they were very uh, lax in terms of allowing me to say whatever I wanted about the institution, um, kind of give my, my own take on it. Um, but really, it's one example, I think, of how it is that British innovators in the 18th century not only created an institution that was quite unique, and actually, it doesn't really fit into many common definitions of, you know, I can't just say it's a learned society or it's a club or it's an association. There's actually nothing else quite like it and actually spawns all sorts of foreign imitators, none of which seems to have lasted quite so long. But it's also a great example of how it is that British innovators were able to create very long lasting institutions. One thing that's really striking, and I think this maybe comes to what's special about Britain in the 18th century and earlier Um, as well, is that in terms of those subcultures creating themselves and then perpetuating, creating new subcultures that support innovation, I think there are a lot of lessons to be drawn from it in terms of how it is that you can do that successfully and also for the long run. You know, 266 years the society's been going. If you look at the Royal Society, the scientific one, which also had this innovation remit when it was founded, although it kind of dropped that um, pretty soon after and concentrated more on what we now call science natural sciences that's you know that, that was founded in the 1660s and again has lasted to the present day yeah how would you try to you said there have been foreign imitators that haven't been successful if you were trying to create one of those how, how might you get started or w- what's the right framework to think about it that's a really good question i've been meaning to write something up on this actually because it interestingly since the book came out i have had a few people get in touch and ask again, invariably, um, inventors or innovators, people in those circles saying, in my locality, you know, it's, it's usually not Silicon Valley, but in my locality, how is it that I could create something um, similar? Uh, I, guess, I guess the the thing to draw from British institutions in the 18th century, one of the key lessons, not just in the Society of Arts, but throughout a lot of the institutions they created, is that they were very often bottom up rather than top down. You know, there's been a lot of focus recently on things like, so in Britain, we've had this, the, a new ARPA, or, you know, people trying to create these new top-down institutions, often government-funded ones that will support innovation. I think there's, there's definitely room for that sort of thing within the innovation-supporting ecosystem. But I think the thing that made Britain special um, in terms of creating these subcultures and then perpetuating them was the bottom-up nature. So the Royal Society, for example, which I mentioned, found in the 1660s, not to be confused with the RSA. It's called royal. It gets a mace as, a, as an indicator of royal approval. And they always have the expectation that they're, get, that they're going to get some funds from the king. But they never actually get any. And so it ends up actually being a bit like a membership society. And nowadays to be an FRS, a fellow of the Royal Society, is one of the highest accolades for any scientist to, to receive, or at least membership accolades for them to receive but ultimately it's still a bottom-up institution it's one where they have to kind of scrounge about for donations try and get membership dues to support themselves in a way that structure themselves in a way that'll i guess be more robust to political changes 
to if if they had been completely at the whim of, of Charles II, you know, had James II or William III or Anne or any or George I just lost interest in that institution, that could have just meant all of their funds dried up and then they would have been left stranded and unable to do anything. So I think there's something about British institutions that are often more robust. Um, and I think that's an important element when trying to design something similar today. You should often try and look at what kind of bottom-up stuff you can do. So the Society of Arts, the subject of the book, it was from the beginning not a government institution. The royal only gets added much, much, much later. And even then it's a kind of honorary thing. And it was a direct democracy. So one person, one vote. And for the first hundred years or so, um, it's essentially whoever paid their subscription fee of two guineas a year or 20 guineas for life, they had a say in whatever it was that it did, how it, how it was that they used that fund for the promotion of the public good, usually for inventions. Sometimes the, the voters decided they would put their money into slightly more random things or things that maybe didn't work quite so well. Um, and there's definitely a lot of trial and error involved. But I think part of what makes, makes it so long lasting is that it had that kind of element. So if you're looking at doing it today, I guess you try to work out how broad based an institution do you want it to be. You know, two guineas a year was actually a lot of money at the time. So it could have been you know, a kind of club for relatively rich or, or, or well off people. Whereas today, you know, there was actually a, for, for most of its history, it wasn't actually keeping its subscription levels up to inflation. So it was still two guineas, even in the early 20th century, um, when they finally started pegging it to inflation. Now it's about 100 and something pounds a year, which is kind of when they started updating it, that's what it had been. So it's much, much more inclusive in that respect. Um, but I think that's actually a decision that would you were you to try and create something similar today, you'd want to look at, OK, well, what, how exclusive do I actually want this to be? How much decision making do you want to invest in? The population is large, you know. I think a lot of organizations, they take pride in having very large memberships. And actually, the site itself is similar to that. It now has 30,000 members, which is much more than it's ever had in its history. But it was, I would say, very successful, even with memberships in the low thousands. 2000 in the 1760s, around 5,000, a bit more in the 18, uh, 1850s and 60s. Um, so I think you can get a long way with smaller memberships. Again, smaller groups. And I think it's worth thinking about that when designing similar things today. Yeah. We were talking, you mentioned Silicon Valley, compare and contrast sort of some of the stuff we've been talking about in, in Britain with sort of the, the rise of, of Silicon Valley or certain, the certain cultural or in, institutional norms or, or structures and certain things that, you know, Silicon Valley, a lot of their listeners could, could learn from, from studying Britain. And, and then more broadly, I, I want us to get into this idea of just creating ecosystems in general in the sense that a lot of people have been saying, how do we create the next Silicon Valley in, you know, X, Y, you know, a place uh, over the world? Is that, is that the wrong question? Or, or, or first, let's compare and contrast Silicon Valley and, and some of the work you've done in Britain. And then let's talk about creating innov- innovation ecosystems more broadly. Yeah, I think the main difference between somewhere like Silicon Valley and Britain is that there's just a lot more money in Silicon Valley. Um, it's, it seems historically that it's relatively, it's probably the easiest it ever has been to get funding up front for, for a project that could be quite speculative. And I think that would have been extremely difficult in the 18th century. Um, usually they're relying on reinvested profits from existing businesses that they were in um, or, you know, loans from a neighbor or partnership with a rich lawyer neighbor who, you know, had some 
property income or maybe a dowry, you know, um, Bolton and Watt, they benefit quite a lot from the fact that Bolton marries into money. In fact, I seem to recall that he was meant to marry one of the sisters, so the sister of his eventual wife, but the sister died and so he ends up marrying the younger sister. <laughs> Again, kind of following the money and then using that for the creation of their, their factory, their very famous factory at Birmingham, the Soho factory. So, you know, the, in terms of the, I guess one way to look at the Industrial Revolution and a lot of the centres in it was that they're operating under that constraint that, yes, they can get funding, but it's often extremely limited, at least by, by modern standards. Um, and then also the kind of support systems that they have are certainly not as good when it comes to institutional support. So the patent system, patents did not last all that long. About 14 years was the norm in the 18th century. And also very, very badly enforced. You know, you'd have to take the costs on to, to do it yourself. You'd have to, you know, basically pay for spies to go to different factories and work out how many of your machines were being used and then try to bring a case against them. So as well as it being extremely, almost unaffordable, effectively, people like Watt or John Wilkinson or Isaac Wilkinson and so on, I'm metallurgist. They're kind of exceptional in the sense of even going around and, and suing people for patent infringement. So, yeah, I think one way to think of it is in those terms, that although they're creating the institutions to support innovation, a lot of the changes that they're coming up with are kind of happening on the fly. Um, a lot of the, the reforms to the patent system, for example, actually come from in- inventors themselves or their initiative, and then the state sort of responding to a lot of petitions, a lot of pleas. Um, so I guess there are some lessons there actually for Silicon Valley today, right? There's all sorts of different, I guess, initiatives and problems with uh, space constraints and rent and so on that are slightly different to the sorts of things that people would have had to worry about in, in the 18th century when things like land for these things would have been relatively abundant. That said, you've also got, I think in the Industrial, in the Industrial Revolution, you've got a lot of different hubs and a lot of different centres. I think London, counterintuitively, to, or rather counter to what a lot of people tend to think about the Industrial Revolution, is actually the main centre for invention. People tend to think of the North or the Midlands as being the centres. Actually, they're the centres of production. The centres of invention tend to be London. And that's probably not all that surprising because London is absolutely massive compared to pretty much any other city in the country. Um, Many, many, many times larger than the next largest city most of the time. And so that kind of hub is extremely important. And yet you also, in the 18th century, start to see this diffusion of hubs where places like Birmingham, famously, or Edinburgh, Um, also somewhat famously, as well as various other regional centres start to pop up and have their own mini hubs, often connected sort of tangentially to the London ones, but also kind of having a life of their own. And I think that's, again, one of these other things that makes things quite robust in Britain. Um, Nowadays, I think there's there's a tendency of people to focus on particular industries and say, you know, Silicon Valley is where all the innovation is at. And that's not quite true, right? Like we actually have a pretty broad spread of inventors and innovators all over not just the country but the world Um, lots of different hubs often specializing in particular industries and maybe at the cutting edge in terms of improving those industries even if they're not working on industries that are brand new and exciting and shiny Um, so there's there's potentially we're kind of having this kind of weird bias where we're looking at silicon valley and trying to recreate it to answer your second question Whereas actually we should be maybe looking at the sort of more minor hubs and actually appreciating for the fact that they are quite, they are still hubs and there is still quite a lot of activity coming out of them. You, you mentioned that the first question you were really 
excited to answer is is just how do we get economic growth or what is sort of the history of it in in understanding that history as, as well as you do what sort of misconceptions do you think people have or what do you think people don't fully appreciate about what what has led to it historically and perhaps what might lead to more of it in the future where is the conversation a little bit off um i mean there's a lot of cases actually of that i think people have a have an intuitive, often wrong understanding of what growth is, first of all. I think they tend to think, equate it with stuff, um, which is why you get a lot of people who worry that, you know, infinite growth is this weird thing that you could never, ever have, that, you know, our planet is finite and people think that growth is infinite. Well, actually, growth is about value. So and it's measured in value. It tends to be, and we, we, we equate it with, or we, we, it's a kind of GDP per capita is, is our best measure, I think, still, of trying to work out how living standards are improving. Um, and I think they track it fairly well, although actually they probably radically underestimate improvements in living standards because they don't really take into account things like quality improvements um, or the addition of new products and so on, because when you put things in real terms, you're actually trying to create a, a single unchanging basket that you have to keep rebasing it all of the time um, as new things become commonplace. Right. Um, so, you know, in the basket of goods, when you're trying to account for inflation nowadays, you're going to have things like the Internet and TV. Well, obviously, those didn't even exist a few decades ago, certainly not a few centuries ago. And yet. So when you're calculating things in real terms, that can make things extremely tricky. And so it's underestimating it to, a, to an extent. But even so, GDP is measured in terms of value. It's, it's how much how much value we're creating for others when we when we produce things. So my favorite example of this is. Um, you know, we could get GDP growth from me taking paper, a, a, a sheaf of paper, a pen, and, you know, my time and writing a story about an 11-year-old English boy who was told and actually is a wizard. Um, and it probably wouldn't be very good. And I doubt I'll sell very many copies. And yet someone else, J.K. Rowling, could Right, use exactly the same inputs and create infinitely more value, creating something very similar, but probably a lot better. And so that effectively is, is one way of kind of framing what economic growth actually is. And I think people, most people in general, don't really appreciate that that's how it works. They, they would, I think, assume that it's just about, you know, how many cars, how many widgets, how many, how much, how many, how much ore, how many, whatever, bits of things, stuff gets produced. I'm not really appreciating the kind of services or kind of other value-led elements of it. Um, and so that, I think, also underscores the sources of it, is that when you start to interrogate how it is that growth works, a lot of people also have this kind of intuitive model that you need at some point to have had a sort of original accumulation of capital to really get things going. And once you've invested a bit in, in a slightly better technology, then you kind of, things just spiral on from there. And so they focus on how it is that certain countries or certain people might have gotten a hold of capital, you know, through conquest, through colonialism, through expropriation of some kind, perhaps through the gains from trade, without realizing that actually there's actually nothing automatic about those things being used in a way that takes existing inputs and, and creates more value out of them. Um, so, you know, there's always been conquest, there's always been expropriation, but very rarely does that expropriation actually result in investment in something that isn't just pre-existing technologies or even just kind of excessive and wasteful consumption. So the key element to how it is that you get economic growth that is continuous and steady 
what economists like to call modern economic growth, that requires not just invention, because actually each individual invention has diminishing marginal returns. You know, if I invent one particular thing, I don't know, we go from plows to tractors, then once everyone's got a tractor and every farmer's using a tractor, we're not going to see continuous growth. We actually need another invention, another one, another one. We need more and more things to keep pushing that curve out there. So it's the acceleration of innovation that I think is particularly important. So in, in all of my writing, I, I try to actually shy away from even terms like the industrial revolution um, and even avoid some of the debates about growth, because in some ways it can be unhelpful and say, look, actually, the thing I'm interested in is the sources of the acceleration of innovation. You know, that is the cause of a lot of these other knock on effects. And that's the thing that I want to explain. Um, and if you think that's an important fund, that is ultimately the phenomenon that I'm now interested in. I've given you a sort of that's often the first lecture I give to world economic history students is kind of similar to that. Yeah. One thing you've, you've written a lot about in your newsletter and otherwise is around statecraft and how, how it relates to mm. e- economic growth. You know, some people are saying that China sort of challenges our traditional notions of, 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 of sort of ideal you know, government structures as it relates to economic growth. Where, where, do you, where do you think there are misconceptions around it or what, what do you think is important to understand as it relates to statecraft and or governance and economic growth? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think policy probably matters more than structure in some ways. So a lot of the stuff I've been working on recently, so this is for book two, which is this kind of, it's the same project. And actually it's an outgrowth of the original project even before I, I wrote Arts and Minds. A lot of the bits that I've been looking at recently have focused, looking at the 17th century, which actually sort of counterintuitively, inventors are actually more successful politically than they are probably before or after that. Um, and yet the fact that they're so successful, at least amongst the as courtiers and in terms of getting the ear of the king and so on, the Elizabeth I, the Queen, and, and then especially the Stuarts, so James I, Charles I, and then to a lesser extent Charles II, is that they, they kind of things get a bit crony, uh, cronyist. Um, they get the, the patent system which is created initially as a sort of almost like an immigration visa with a temporary monopoly on whatever foreign technique usually was being introduced to the country in the mid to late 16th century, that increasingly becomes something that's used through essentially royal diktat, right? A patent is, a, is, a, is an open proclamation by the monarch. Um, so it's something that where they're using their prerogative powers, they're, super, they're going around the need for anything like parliament and just saying, look, this is the monarch's right, can kind of suspend the law in this particular way and just say, look, I'm going to give a temporary monopoly on these things because they're important. And so a lot of inventors are kind of, they're they're kind of becoming, I guess, they're often called bloodsuckers of the Commonwealth, is I think one one term in which an MP in the late 16th century um, refers to them in that they start to not get patents for things that aren't necessarily inventions, or even if they are patents for inventions, they're then enforcing those monopolies um, in a way that actually covers a lot of other industries as well. And so there's a kind of huge amount of corruption that ensues from it. Um, So in terms of political regimes, I'm not sure there's even anything especially, especially kind of special about what the regime is. It's more to do with how it is that, that, it, that it kind of ha- does affect its innovation policy. And in some ways, I would say that actually 
inventors become the tools of absolutism in that the project of people like Charles I to turn England into an absolutist monarchy um, relies very much on using projectors or outsiders, inventors, often foreigners, um, certainly people who aren't often local to a particular area that's affected, um, to kind of bring in these industry-changing innovations and then give rewards or rents directly to the monarch in a way that supersedes a lot of the older structures like guilds and city corporations, all the kind of other rights that may have been given by parliament and and often used as a way to circumvent the need for monarchs to even call parliaments. So in some ways, inventors can, I think, actually be the causes of particular political configurations even coming about. And so that's, I guess there's yeah, there's a, there's a whole mix of different things that I've mentioned there thematically, I suppose. It being that I think it, the, the context matters hugely there and that we also need to not just be wary of what kind of policies affect invention, but also how, I guess, um, innovators and inventors affect policy, how it is that they can maybe bring about particular political regimes. What, what are the big debates in it, whether it's looking historically at what's led to, to innovation or, or whether it's looking forward as to sort of ecosystems or cultures or governments that lead to innovation, like in, in the field, you know, we, we look at other historians of, of, of innovation. What, what do you all have uh, argue about or potentially have differences of opinion, whether it's Matt Ridley or Joel or, or, or any of the others or, or, or questions that you're still trying to answer? Yeah, I mean, people like Ridley or John McKeer or Tigger McCloskey, I think. In some ways, so people with people like McKeer and McCloskey, I, I'm definitely in a similar tradition to them in that I'm, in terms of looking at the Industrial Revolution, this period, all of us kind of, I think there is agreement that the acceleration of innovation is the thing to explain. And there's certainly, I've taken from them certain, certain kind of facts, key facts, you might call them. So economists like to call them stylized facts about the period um, from which we then have to kind of the things we need to kind of use as the building box to then build theories around. Things like um, the innovation of acceleration affected not just leading industries like cotton, coal, and steam engines or iron, but actually every in any industry um, in the country seems to have been affected. Maybe even more than industries that you get a lot of innovation that's kind of from a similar source, but in all sorts of different fields. You know, everything from agriculture to watchmaking to, you know, I've, I've got inventors that I've studied who start applying the improving mindset, as I call it, to uh, things like love letter writing and uh, how it is that we organise the, the the choir in the church to sing the hymns. Um, so invention seems to be this kind of tidal wave that affects um, all industries. Um, so that's kind of one example. So the, the importance of innovation, the widespread kind of way that in, in innovation affected the country um, those are some of those kind of basic points of agreement. And I, I guess because of those points of agreement, I and some of these other people um, in that kind of camp, I suppose, we focus on, for want of a better word, culture, I think more accurately, subcultures or ideas, norms, institutions, but in a kind of more informal way rather than just the formal political institutions like the law like the structure of the government and so on um, as being probably the more important things we need to focus our attentions Um, where i differ from them 
I mean, certainly amongst a lot of other historians who look at the period, you know, I, I differ on, I, I think, the importance of things like economic incentives with people like Robert Allen. I probably disagree with a lot of people about the importance of uh, certain changes to trade patterns, the kind of rise of the Atlantic economy. Um, certainly a lot of agreement there as well. Um, but in terms of what's the more important thing that we should be looking at, I think there's a bit of disagreement there. And then when it comes to people like McCloskey, you know, I think that, so she has this, this, this theory that we're kind of, I guess, a, a model of, in, a mental model of innovation, that innovation is this sort of thing that happens naturally. And if you were to kind of take the, the, the boot off of the neck, um, if you were to, I'm thinking for the 1980, boot, boot in the face, right, for 1984, if you were to kind of, take the stone off the grass, then things will simply naturally grow. That if you provide dignity, if you provide liberty for inventors, then they, people naturally innovate. Um, whereas I actually disagree with that model and think that innovation is actually this extremely rare thing that very, very few people do. It's a bit like this sort of weird hobby that starts to spread from person to person um, amongst a very small group of people. Um, and in that respect, I guess I'm, I have, probably more similarities with, with someone like John McKeer, who does focus on, he likes to call it upper tier human capital. So it's actually the very top group of people who are shifting innovation, the technological frontier outwards. Yes, the skills in the population as a whole are extremely important for facilitating that, but actually the number of inventors and scientists are, are quite few. Um, and so we need to study that relatively small group um, to work out what's going on. Um, but, you know, even in his case, he has this focus on enlightenment norms, or as he likes to call it, the industrial enlightenment. And I think even for my, for my, for my taste, I think even that's a bit broad. And I think that in, in some ways you see that exhibited all over Europe. And he has, in his most recent book, Culture of Growth, this a theory that says, actually, yes, all of Europe is experiencing these changes, but... Britain just has a few other factors that just makes it a little bit more precocious than others that had Britain not existed. Maybe you'd have had something very similar happening in a different way and perhaps more slowly, perhaps faster, who knows, in somewhere like France and Italy and Germany. Um, I think I probably broadly agree with that because you actually do get a lot of invention throughout the period. Um, and actually Britain in the 16th and 17th centuries is relatively backward technologically, scientifically. It's, it's on the periphery of new advances and often one of the last places in Europe to get them. And so, yeah, I think those are some of the ways in which I differ with some of the, with those authors. Ridley's, um, I've not actually read fully the, the latest book, but where I suspect I disagree with him is on things like invention versus innovation. I and mean, this is one of his big things, um, taking from the economics literature in particular, this distinction that invention is the coming up with the idea. And, and maybe what matters actually more isn't so much that people come up with new ideas, it's the, their application to, the, to society as a whole. Usually, because it comes from economics, this is focusing on markets. But actually, I think innovation, invention, personally, I think are almost indistinguishable. Um, they're simply kind of different parts of the same process. Um, and that most people actually use those two words pretty interchangeably. And I think in some ways that's actually analytically quite accurate. And, and really what we're looking at here is marginal improvements, but in lots of different domains, um, that it could be improvement to the process. It could be improvement to the, the design of the product. It could be improvement to the way in which the product is shipped or marketed. 
uh, or what have you. But also that may not even be a market process at all and that a lot of innovation affects government services, for example, you know, the how, it, how well organized the postal system is, which is another of the innovations of the period. So subtle differences, I guess. How would you describe Deirdre McCloskey's core contribution to, to the literature? Um, I think McCloskey is one of the key, uh, at least so that, I mean, McCloskey is an extremely long career of you know, making quite a lot of really important contributions to the economics, to the economic history literature um, from things like the, the debates over whether or not Britain had this kind of decline in the late 19th century to the enclosure debates, um, to the introduction of using a lot of clearmetric measurement um, in the field at all in, 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 I guess, the 70s and 80s. And Keir also kind of spearheading that. Um, in terms of, the, I, I guess you're really asking about the later or more recent work, so the bourgeois dignity, bourgeois equality, kind of mega books that she has recently, Magnum Opi, Magnum Opus, um, that she has has released. I think the the key contribution for me, having read those books, is about, I guess, getting at those really fundamental building blocks on which I think the our theories that we take seriously about the Industrial Revolution should kind of satisfy those conditions. Um, so as I mentioned, things like what we need to be taking seriously here is the acceleration of innovation. You know, she spends a lot of bourgeois dignity going through a lot of other theories and questioning them, interrogating them, showing how they don't quite work. Now, the book is about 10 years old now, so a lot of those theories have developed or, or adjusted or tried to get around some of her critiques, and so maybe it's worth someone going through and kind of working out how that's changed. But I think that was a very valuable thing she did to clarify those points. Uh, but as I say, I, kind of, I actually disagree with the overall thesis about, you know, once you take out the things that perhaps don't explain it, what's left, her theory and mine are very similar in that they focus on ideas and subcultures but they also differ in terms of their model of innovation the the writer peter zehan who um in his books he, instead of focusing on culture and governance and those are topics we, we focused on largely here um he focuses on demographics geography and energy uh in trying to understand why certain you know countries have have been stronger than than others how, how do you react to that or how, how do you make sense of that? I'm not familiar with the work, so I'll have to check it out, but I can maybe speak to some of the those theories in general, because obviously I have come across quite a few of them. So things like coal, for example, people love coal um, as an explanation of the Industrial Revolution. And it's, actually, what's interesting is physicists especially love coal as an explanation of the Industrial Revolution, because I guess there's a kind of appeal to particular constraints being lifted once you unlock the potential of um, fossil fuels. So, but I have, I have a few problems with those sorts of explanations. Firstly, it's that to even unlock the potential of coal in the first place requires technology. And the fact that those things were invented in the first place comes in the middle of an acceleration of innovation, right? Coal using technologies Maybe coal using technologies are pretty important. I'm not going to deny that at all. Um, they certainly have these outsized effects compared to a lot of other types of innovation. But you know, things like um, coke smelting of iron, you know, that's happening at the same time as roughly as all sorts of changes to surgical technique, 
to hygiene, to other you know, ways in which living standards are affected. And actually the application of coal to lots of different industries and to heating in particular, you know, these happen over a very extended period of time. And again, with lots of inventors involved who also are involved with inventing all sorts of other things as well. So in some ways I see the, the use of coal and the unlocking of these constraints as more a, a result of the acceleration of innovation, one of its many um, results rather than a cause. But also I can see a world in which maybe we didn't unlock the potential of, of coal um, would growth have been slower? Yes. Would populations have been lower? Also, probably yes, right? It, it, it unlocked a lot of potential there in terms of getting around the basic land constraint that we could, instead of having to deforest the entirety of the British Isles um, or you know, majorly um, place strain on forests in, I guess, the rest of Europe, especially in the Baltic or perhaps North America, um, that we could dig down instead of digging, instead of instead of spreading out. Um, that we could devote more lands to other uses, um, such as to textiles or to food production, in particular, with which we could then support much higher populations, and then from those high populations get more innovation and just all sorts of other benefits from agglomeration, uh, from concentrating all these people as well. But as I said, I can also see a, a, a path we could have taken where, had coal not existed, could we have also had all sorts of Living standards, improving innovations? Absolutely. I think there's maybe room for someone to write a kind of alternative counterfactual history book trying to explore what that would have even looked like. But, you know, a lot of other materials that were becoming increasingly common, they didn't necessarily rely on coal um, until much, much later. Or they were the sorts of things that could have used alternative fuels like peat, um, like biomass, um, so turning wood or turning wood into charcoal and then using that. And also there have been calculations done by economic historians trying to work out you know, what, how much would it have cost British GDP per capita over the long run had we had to import our fuel from the Baltic rather than having these domestic sources of coal. And the, the impact doesn't seem to be all that great. Um, now, I think some of those calculations may need revisiting. This is a, a paper by Clark and Jacks, if listeners want to look it up. Um, it's a really interesting kind of approach to just trying to work out what, how, how you know, actually quantify what is the effect here, um, given the next best alternatives, right? So to use imported wood instead of using coal. And the impact doesn't seem to be uh, especially huge there. Um, so I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it's something like 9%. Um, which is, you know, that's significant, right? That's a big knock to living standards, but it's not the end of the world. And it's, and it's not necessarily saying that the, the trend of this continuous upwards, almost exponential graph, it's not to say that that would have been stifled altogether. Next, I want, I want to talk briefly about, I'm curious where you disagree with, with Peter Thiel at all. And I'll, I'll say a couple sure. things, things he, he refers to, but also feel free to bring up any others. So one is just the stagnation thesis more broadly, and I, I think he's echoing sort of Robert Gordon's you know, rise and fall of, of uh, uh, economic growth, particularly you know, specifically the growth rate. And I think he then credits it to a combination of of regulation and uh, culture that we've just become way less amb- ambitious. So uh, as a culture, you know, Nixon declared sort of you know war on cancer. Uh, someone else might have declared war on Alzheimer's. Or, or sorry, you, I think you said we, we would never today declare, you know, tr- trying to end Alzheimer's. We've just become w- way less ambitious on a, on a national level, uh, but also on an individual level. We sort of deny it by saying that technology is either moving 
is is too fast and that's either going to be great or you know too fast and it's going to be terrible but not that it's moving too slow relative to w- what it used to be what are your, your takes on some of these topics um so i kind of buy the argument from people like Dietz Folrath, um, which is that actually things are improving at pretty much the same rate as they had when it comes to technology, but that growth is being lowered by various other factors, most of which we've actually chosen voluntarily. Um, so he's applied this to the US. I'm not sure how the figures translate to places like the UK or to the rest of Europe, but it seems as though quite a big chunk of the growth slowdown that people like Gordon has um, identified is really due to things like demographic factors that we have fewer kids and which means you know if you have less of a labor input because there are fewer additional people entering the labor force all the time every year excuse me every year then you're also going to have lower outputs as a result but it's not as though we we didn't choose that right it's it's us making the choice to have fewer kids uh, because you know maybe we just value our time or the relative cost of having children has um, changed because of the potential benefits of leisure and so on travel and eating out at restaurants and that kind of thing, which is something we've long known about as a, you know, this was work by, um, I think Gary Becker, um, kind of applying economics to the family and, and to those sorts of decisions. So part of it's things like that. Part of it's also the kind of, we take a lot more leisure time. We work less in many ways overall, you know, people retire, we spend longer in full-time education. So in terms of our, the total amount of hours in terms of our working lives that we'll devote to things like production that then get measured in terms of things like GDP, that has potentially been lowering again to, for, for good, right? The fact that we get more leisure time, the fact that we get, and by the way, significantly more leisure time than, than in any of the recent, recent past. Um, the fact we even have two days off at a weekend is actually quite historically quite quite significant. Used to be one day, used to basically be none. Those are the sorts of things that are good, but they have this effect on economic growth, at least in terms of how we measure it. And so his argument is kind of that we should in some ways relax. That said, there are, of course, things that we could do um, to improve economic growth rates where there are, it's, this, isn't, this is not a Panglossian thing to say that everything's fine, relax. We should, I think, still be worried about the rate of technological progress. We should be constantly, as I think our ancestors did, try to reinvent institutions that support innovation for the present day if they seem to be coming unfit for purpose, if they don't seem to be quite pulling their weight. Try to focus on the sorts of reforms that may enable things, um, lobby for things like, for example, more efficient uh, land use. So, for example, you know, trying to look at planning emissions and, and zoning restrictions and the effects that they may have on economic growth um, and on innovation in general, you know, the ability of people to, to cluster into cities and have these great agglomeration effects. All of those, you know, there are, of course, barriers that he identifies to it as well. But yeah, I, don't, I definitely don't take that. I guess I do take it seriously, but I, I don't believe this theory that we've kind of just run out of low-hanging fruit, that we've kind of just mined all of the ore when it comes to certain types of technology, and that's it, um, which seems to be Gordon's thesis that we've we had these big leaps forward, but that was because the realm of what was physically possible has now been explored in particular ways, and we're now running out of those things, and so we're going to get this kind of permanent stagnation. I just don't buy that at all. Like daily, we seem to be seeing new things that are completely pushing out the boundaries of what it is that we even knew was possible, 
in the same way that, you know, to the to people of the past, right, if I showed them an iPhone, they would kind of lose their minds because it doesn't even seem like the world, the laws of physics would have even allowed for these sorts of things to even exist. And I think we're, we're continuing to see that with advances in genetics, you know, things like genome sequencing. I don't think anybody expects it to be quite so rapid as it is now, um, even just a few years ago. Um, and the kind of potential that unlocks things like our our ability to treat disease and to to find cures to all sorts of other things as well. Just as an example, say more about the 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 the, the culture uh, the, the the critiques that Peter and others have had. You you wrote a piece uh, about statues at, at one point, but but it say say where you think we needed a, a change in, in in the culture or where there's merit to it. Or right, so yeah, I guess. One thing to be wary of for people in Silicon Valley, for inventors, for, for people who are, who are excited about invention, is that we, need to, we do need to actually think about what kind of cultures or subcultures we want to create. Um, and I think there was often a very conscious effort throughout the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries to do that. Um, so in the 17th century, a lot of it focuses on how do we get away from the reputation we've created for ourselves as inventors, as being cronies of the state, these bloodsuckers of the Commonwealth? How do we actually take, get people to the people, not, not just the monarch, to take innovation seriously? So I guess you could, you could, if I were to kind of sketch it out briefly, the 16th century is when inventors in England are trying to get elites, mercantile elites who've got money, um, and the state who can give them the privileges and the kind of dispensations and the, from regulation and the kind of patents and, and various other kind of um, things to kind of ease, ease the, the passage of, of, of various projects, innovative projects, um, to get those people to take them seriously and to value them um, as experts, as innovators. Um, then in the 17th century, after this all goes completely terribly wrong, um, with all of the attacks that you get in Parliament on monopolies, on monopolists, um, a lot of it in some ways culminating in the English Civil War, um, you've then got this project to, cultural project, to try and make inventors, pro- projectors, as they come to derisively be known, um, be seen as being valuable members of the Commonwealth, as people who are actually creating inventions that that increase living standards for everyone and aren't just these kind of pernicious, cronyist um, monopolies. And then in the 18th century, you've got the creation of all of these other institutions like the Society of Arts, right? The use of medals to try and get people who, who wouldn't necessarily be inventors usually, so richer aristocrats or people who want to demonstrate that they're inventing things for the public good and not just for their pecuniary gain, um, that's a, again a cultural project and creating institutions that raise the status of people who are pushing the, touch, the technological frontier. And then that kind of goes even further in the 19th century where you get these projects to, for example, value inventors historically. Um, so lots of statues of inventors popping up all over the place um, in addition to the statues of generals and politicians to try and say, look, these are also people who are a part of our culture. So you get, for example, lots of people who are interested in invention trying to get a statue put up to Gutenberg to celebrate printing and the invention of the printing press and just to kind of really focus on 
heroes, if you like, that, that people can, can rally around and try to emulate. And you see this especially in the 1860s with things like the publication of um, Samuel Smiles's book, Self-Help, um, one of the most popular books ever printed at, at, at the time. Sorry, not ever printed, but one of the most popular books printed at the time. Instant bestseller, pretty much. And it's basically just the story of various inventors pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and, and becomes this source of inspiration to a whole new generation of inventors. Now, that's the thing is, in some ways, myth-making and may in some ways be seen as being, you know, when people look at self-help by Samuel Smiles, they say, yes, in some ways it's an important historical document because he actually did go and interview a lot of people and got a lot of really interesting traditions and actually put that down in writing so we can use it in some ways as a historical source. But we've also got to be very careful because his agenda here is that he is an, in, an invention cheerleader, that he is someone who is trying actively to get people to become inventors. Um, and so I think those sorts of cultural projects we need to take very seriously. I, I'm, to be honest, like I see that, right? A lot of the people, the fact that you are, for example, interviewing me and the fact that you've got people commenting on culture like Teal, um, like um, I guess more slightly more tangential people, Tyler Cowen, um, the fact that you've got people, people like Patrick Collison at Stripe commenting on the need for something like progress studies, a whole new field, potential kind of multidisciplinary project that takes these sorts of questions seriously suggests to me that actually this project is you're seeing the current generation of inventors and their cheerleaders taking up that mantle and again having to to cater it to the specific current context right that the kinds of solutions i think that we see today need to be informed by the history um, but they're going to have to be different given that things are different that the the kinds of culture that we get the kinds of critiques that you get, right? I, I know there's this kind of rivalry between tech journalists and technologists a lot of the time, or this kind of grousing about what, what one is saying about the other. Those are exactly the sorts of battles in a, in, a, in a different way or challenges in a different way that people in the 17th century, let's say, are worrying about when the satirists are deriding them for being projectors with you know, all sorts of crazy schemes. Let's talk about progress studies for a second, because I see you mentioned sort of you know shining examples of of the culture sort of evolving and beginning to evaluate that. I, I see that as fundamentally reactionary in some sense, but just it, it, I, I'm a supportive of it. But sort of responding to a lot of culture, which is sort of like you know guillotines at Jeff Bezos's outside Jeff Bezos's house, which is sort of like anti-capitalist, anti-Western, and is in fact been sort of institutionalized at, at, at the university level. You know, someone once said that. Uh, progress studies is to neoliberals what gender studies is to you know sort of the far, the far left and interesting. i've not heard that that's very interesting it, it just seems as sort of in stark contrast to many of the other disciplines um that have seemingly you know infested other disciplines uh, with sort of anti sort of capitalist r- r- rhetoric do, do, do you not see it see it that way or how, how, do, how do you think about it no i'm not sure i do see it that way i think the success of progress studies is partly born out of the reaction, but I think that's more something that happened after it. I'm not, I'm not sure it's the source of it. So I think it created a sort of banner, that article that, that Patrick and um, Tyler put out in the Atlantic, created a banner around which people could rally who had been thinking this, I think, for years and years and years, right? And maybe just hadn't had a name or a label for the kind of particular set of beliefs or priorities, I guess, is a way is a more accurate way of putting it that they already had. 
Um, so I think, you know, with, with any kind of subculture creation, I think you need to have, I guess, banners, but those banners are often kind of revealing what's already sort of there or, or relabeling what's already there. So there's a sort of power in the language, if you like, to do that. I, 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 don't, th- I don't think it's a, it's a reaction or a kind of protest in any way against a, a particular way that things are going. Um, if anything, the kinds of thing it's pushing back on more against, I suppose, would be the sorts of critiques that people like Teal have been coming up with. Now, I know, I know that Tyler Cowan has his own stagnation thesis in some ways agrees, but in some ways it's a kind of more positive call to arms to study the causes and then come up with solutions if that kind of thing is a problem. And actually, you know, what's interesting is the stagnation thesis, even if, you know, I disagree with it, but it's actually in a way been useful in exactly the same, like a useful myth in exactly the same way that the myth of the inventor in the 19th century may have been a useful myth. It could have been completely untrue, but if it got more people to be inventors or if the stagnation thesis have got more people thinking about creating institutions to get over this problem, you know, I think sometimes identifying problems that aren't there can in some ways be good. Right. You know, the, um, of course, you know, the Mark Andreessen, it's, it's time to build blog post. And, and this uh, T- Tanner Greer, this writer, wrote, wrote a blog post basically saying that the reason we're, we're, we are not a culture that builds is because we instead are a culture that asks, can I talk to the manager? <laughs> you know, tries to <laughs> spend so much time conv- trying to convince management uh, as opposed to focus on, on building you know, fighting over the, you know, the scraps of a limited pie rather than expanding the pie. And it's sort of, my, my theory is that like, you know, not to be too crude on it, but like the meek have inherited the earth in the sense that like Mark Zuckerberg is not popular. Like Jeff Bezos is, is, is not popular. Like a lot of these inventors, a lot of these companies are, 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 are not popular. People are, you know, they're, they're not seen as by, by, you know, half or, or, or even majority of the population, even within the tech industry as sort of these people who are, you know, giving, you know, unequivocally good stuff to, to, to the world. And there is this sort of just resentment politics that has sort of taken over uh, culture and infected institutions. And I, I think that's what Teal is perhaps, um, you know, commenting on. And I agree, Progress Studies is, is, is responding to, 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 to the Teal critique and try and provide an alternative. But it seems that this is gaining power in America and being exported globally. And I'm curious... I mean, I've, I've described it in very broad strokes, but it's sort of critical theory apl- applied to everything. I'm, I'm curious if, if that at all resonates or, or if you don't see it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, actually, because I think that sort of critique or that worry exists within actually a very small but vocal group of people. right? I think in general, if you were to poll the population as a whole and you said, do you use and like Facebook? I think most people are like, yeah, I love it. Same with Google, right? This is just a thing that people use all the time. And they're like, yeah, it's, it works pretty well. And, you know, I'm, I'm po- relatively positive towards the company. Uh, maybe Facebook less so. It gets a lot, Zuckerberg gets a lot more, more flack for things. I think Google, in, you know, doesn't have it quite, quite so bad. Um, but actually, you know, I think in the general population is relatively relaxed about these things. The same with Uber. I, I reckon if you were to poll population as a whole, they'd be relatively relaxed with it. And they're actually broadly positive. Um, now, amongst the literati, people who tweet the most, people who 
are engaged with politics the most, who write the most. Um, I guess amongst those those sorts of people, yes, you do see this kind of scepticism. You do see this questioning, and sometimes rightly so, right? There are infractions. You know, in, in the same way that in the seventeenth century, you've got to take seriously the critiques of monopolists. I think the critiques in technology could be probably similar. But one actually, one thing I'll one one thing I'll come back on, which was very interesting that you said this kind of idea that we the that Otanagria's idea that it's um, asking the manager. What's interesting to me about that actually is actually asking the manager is much more ambitious than just trying to build something yourself. Because when you ask the manager and you try to get a change, what you're trying to do is you're trying to create a framework that applies not just to your locality, not just to your own activities, but to everybody's activities, right? So when you lobby for a reform to the law, you're trying to lobby for something that changes the entire structure for absolutely everybody in every single way. Uh, now, for me, that's kind of interesting because you only really start to see those sorts of lobbying efforts amongst groups like the Society of Arts in the 1850s with the influence of utilitarianism. Um, so Bentham's and, and John Stuart Mill's acolytes who feel that when you do good, it should be you know, the greatest good for the greatest number. And so it should be for everybody, for the masses, um, when you try to get sorts, of, when you try to get reforms through, in the same way that I guess, in some ways, you can maybe see that. Although I think it's less direct in terms of the genealogy of this idea. You know, with the shift to exhibitions versus which you know thousands or millions of people can attend versus using prizes, which maybe affect a single inventor and maybe have this particular effect on a on a very small industry, rather than having these kind of na- nationwide or even worldwide effects. So what, one thing I think that's maybe interesting about the kind of building movement is, is in some ways we should maybe kind of dial down the ambition there in terms of what we want to do with it. Right? I guess there's this, this obsession with scale a lot of the time when it comes to new technology. And maybe we should celebrate the fact that actually a lot of the time coming up with a new technology has a very local effect. Maybe it's not going to make you famous. Maybe it's not going to make you super rich, but actually it can have a huge amount of good. So I've been reading about projects of the, the 16th and 17th centuries, the work of a relatively unknown, but actually quite well-known in her time um, from a few decades ago, economic historian called uh, Joan Thursk. And she points out that really kind of almost, I guess, parochial, um, kind of boring projects, unlike the cotton, the steam, and that kind of exciting stuff in the Earth Revolution, could have this dramatic uh, uh, impact on England and or certain areas of England. So things like growing woad. So I don't know. When I think of woad, I always think of woad raiders from Age of Empires 2. Um, but growing woad, this 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 dye, the blue dye, um, seems to have had this huge impact in terms of the amount of people that it that it employed. You know, it's the introduction of a new, a relatively unused or, or new crop, or certainly at a greater scale in the mid-16th and late 16th centuries. Um, to the extent that actually it kind of seems to affect imports so much that the government goes goes out and, and decides to ban it because they would rather it was imported and people would pay the duties on it. So even these minor things, I think when we when, when we talk about building, I think I guess we should we should be focusing on on the ambition that we have for that. And and yeah, I guess I agree that it's a good thing to have more of that, but we shouldn't get so carried away with it being this kind of national or international level effect. No, I appreciate. I think I think the the pushback on the manager thing is 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 smart. It, it, it's it, it's a, it's a good counter. I haven't heard that counter. 
Uh, Anton, for, for people who want to learn more about your work, uh, where, where can you point them? And please give a give a plug for for your for your next book or what, what to expect in the future. Oh, great. Um, so AntonHouse.com, all one word is, well, I guess not the .com, but AntonHouse, all one word, uh, and then .com is my website. I have a sub stack, which I post, I guess, every week or fortnight or so, um, which is AntonHouse.substack.com. Um, that's, I guess, the main way to find me. Also, Twitter, at Anton House, again, all one word. And then my book, which is out right now, um, came out a few months ago, is Arts and Minds, How the Royal Society of Arts Changed the Nation. And it's available, I guess, everywhere. Excellent. Uh, Anton, this has been a fantastic podcast episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.